0: The Uniform Services Employment and Reemployment Rights Act, known as USERA. It's a 1994 law that protects service members and veterans from discrimination because of their service. Now, the Merit Systems Protection Board has clarified some of those rights under USERA, as we hear from Tully Rinke's national security partner, Dan Meyer. Dan, good to have you on. Glad to be here, Tom. What has happened with the MSPB and USERA? This is, I thought, was kind of settled law, but apparently there's some some new twists here.
1: Yes, Tom, the board is moving into a longstanding agenda items from the past decade, more or less, things they haven't addressed, but have needed some treatment. The surprise on this decision regarding veterans is that the board just decided that uh, it would not take uh, reprisal allegations, retaliation allegations on equal employment opportunity cases but now they've turned around and said they will do that for veterans, which is a substantial broadening of protection for our veterans who work for the federal government. Uh, surprisingly, people don't realize that it's the federal government who discriminates against veterans. This is why we have to have these protections. And the board has said that if you are a, attacked by federal supervisors and managers because you've exercised a right of filing a complaint, the board will entertain that. Uh, The very interesting part of this is they used a provision of the law, the uh, sufficiently pervasive to alter the conditions of employment clause, which many of us have tried to use for a variety of causes over the last 20 years. They actually resorted to that to give uh, veterans standing to sue in front of the board for this. So it's a big win for vets.
0: Well, let me just ask you about the connection between USERRA violations and EEO types of complaints. Those tend to be discrimination based on gender or age or racial affiliation. How does that relate over to USERA and map to veteran status or, or military service member status?
1: So for both USERRA and EEO, you have to remember that those laws address both private and public employment. For the board, we're talking only about rights of public employment. And so at the beginning of any case, it's very important for counsel to work with client to decide what is going to which tribunal. There are certain things that if it goes forward, for instance, as a mixed case, you're gonna lose out a hearing on the board side at the same time uh, you may be going forward with the EEO process. The same with U.S.A.R.A. There are provisions to go into district court with U.S.A.R.A. The nice thing about being able to go to the board, frankly, is it's cheaper for veterans. So uh, Title V is set up. The board's jurisdiction is set up, actually. So veterans could, if they wanted to, even represent themselves. That's very hard to do in federal district court. I think it's also unwise to do before the board, but I'm a lawyer, so I, I would make that statement. So part of this is getting them access to the board, which remember the Merit Systems Protection Board stepped in and was created actually uh, because of a backlog of cases in the federal courts in the 1970s. So even though we think it's all clogged up and it doesn't do its job properly now uh, after 40 years, when it was set up, it was set up because all the cases were clogged up and not moving forward. So there is advantage just to be able to go forward with the board But it's important at the very beginning of the case to decide what is going to which tribunal uh, and have a strategy so that you don't end up getting far down the pike with one tribunal and then find out that uh, they don't have jurisdiction or you don't have standing. And this is expanded standing for veterans in front of the board.
0: We're speaking with attorney Dan Meyer. He's national security partner of the law firm Tully Rinke. And so what we're seeing then is a reversal of policy by the MSPB to take U.S.A.R.A. based EEO complaints that they were not taking in earlier years, just to summarize?
1: Yeah, if you had brought this type of retaliation or reprisal complaint previously, it probably would have been dismissed. You would have had to take it over into federal district court through U.S.A.R.A.'s provisions. And frankly, judges in Article Three courts are not big on reprisal cases. They don't like to think about that as protecting their own sources as judges. It's just a cultural issue that we've never socialized judges to think about protecting the sources in the process in the same way that the board is culturally sensitive to protecting sources because of its relationship with the Office of Special Counsel and other federal whistleblower programs.
0: All right. Well, let me ask you this then. In your experience, what types of violations of you, Sarah, do we commonly see anymore?
1: Well, this is really complicated. You know, almost a third of the federal workforce are veterans. And I think that engenders a lot of uh, animosity towards vets. I think non-vets see them as being kind of piggies at the trough and honing in on protected jobs and cushy jobs in the federal government. What the non-veteran in the federal workforce forgets is that the veteran's there because the veteran has paid up front. You're not born a veteran. Okay, And that's not like other minorities where you're born into a particular status that society has not treated you well for. A veteran steps forward to do a public mission that has to be done while others do not. We have an all-volunteer force, so you do not have to serve non-veteran because a veteran stepped in and did your job for you. That's the veteran's perspective. They don't articulate it because they're pretty humble people. From the non-veteran perspective, they just see it as competition in the workplace, and they see somebody— getting something that they don't get and they get angry about it. And if that person progresses up to a supervisor or manager, it can become a very nasty anti-veteran culture within within a federal agency. So there's all sorts of things. and People can try to bypass the veterans preference rules. People can make assumptions about veterans that are wrong. I'll just give you one. Uh, It is from the private employment field. But I went to an interview at a company that no longer exists called MCI And in the middle of the interview, I had just come back from Desert Storm, I was asked by a rather junior member of the panel whether I would go postal. Yikes. I I was shocked by the question because I I didn't even make the connection that I was a veteran and somebody might think that I would cook off in the workplace and hurt somebody and use a pejorative term going postal, which is very pejorative towards postal workers. But that's the kind of, and I didn't file a complaint because, you know, I, I went on to another job I actually enjoyed more. But that's the kind of animus that can exist out there. And it just always shocks the conscience that that would exist inside the federal government, which is in charge of the mission that veterans accomplish. Sure. It's uh, I, I think there's, it's a very complicated cultural issue. Veterans are not the same type of minority as other minorities in the federal government. It's not a visual minority. It's not one that's apparent. You don't know that somebody's a veteran when you see them walking down the hall. And because of that, I think it takes special training and special sensitivity. Sure.
0: All right. Let me ask you this. As the time progresses and more and more people coming into the government might not have been veterans, because right now we're not producing them at the rate that we did earlier, do you think that there are people that just have a cultural or a social bias against the military or military activities could become more prevalent at the managerial levels and cause problems for people that did serve?
1: Tom, it's already happened. You know, After World War II, I think 75% of Congress was veteran. In the workplace, there were non-veterans who did not get jobs after World War II because they were reserved for vets who went over to fight the Axis powers. So starting with a high point of maybe the mid-1950s, by the time you get to the all-volunteer force of the late 1970s, when the People, people now think if you register for the draft, you somehow serve. No, no, you just registered for the draft. We haven't invoked the draft for good reasons since the 1973 or so. So it's 1%, I think, was the number that fought in Southwest Asia of the country. And so 1% pays for the national security and the 99% profits. And I think the problem has been not so much that managers haven't served so they can't understand the needs of the veterans in the workplace because we have managers who are not african-american but can understand the eeo requirements quite well the big challenge has been in the messaging and this needs to come from opm and OMB and the white house and from congress in making the connections not just thanking people for their service i really hate that phrase it really recall it to me uh, <laughs> but but thinking about what the person actually did when you get in your car Uh, and you drive somewhere this weekend, people going on vacations all over the country, do people make the connection between global energy needs and what that veteran did for 20 years? It's never nice to say that, you know, some of our national security is about securing energy sources for ourselves and our allies, but that's a lot what our guys were doing. So that's the problem, is that we don't make the connection in our daily life between the benefit the government gives us and who provides that benefit and the fact that we're not the one providing the benefit. Everybody likes to get something for free, and that includes the benefits of national security.
0: Attorney Dan Meyer is national security partner of the law firm Tully Rinky. Thanks so much.
1: Great to be with you, Tom. Anytime.
0: And we'll post this interview at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA.
3: Be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing.
2: You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities
3: across the U.S. How did you
2: become passionate about the education field and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned?
3: First of all. I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was a great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama and there was no law
2: Influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State. It, it had to have
3: had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So, if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters, who were ten times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were illiterate. They never got an opportunity to show